So if you guys can, we're going to be uh, continuing our sermon series, Grace Changes Everything, as we do our study through the book of Galatians. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. And we're going to continue where Pastor Ryan left off. And while you are turning there, I will just kind of catch us up from where we uh, were in this series. Um, we are looking at how Paul himself uh, was describing that he had received the gospel from none other than Jesus himself. So it wasn't like he was a, a study or a tutor of Christianity underneath anybody else but Jesus Christ. And therefore, he was describing himself as a man saved by grace. That everything that he has done by the, you know, from moving forward from his encounter with Jesus Christ has shaped and molded him not by discipline or not by um, his own intellect, but by the grace that the Lord captured him with. So the Lord captured him on the road to Damascus. He was on his way. Uh, his name was Saul at the time, and he was persecuting Christians. He was ripping families apart and sending them to jail or having them executed as a Jew. And um, he was just felt like he was on this righteous, holy war. Um, but at the time, for Christians, he was like the Osama bin Laden of the New Testament. And so he met Jesus on the way to uh, Damascus. And the Lord uh, knocked him over off of his little donkey there and said, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he's saying from that point moving forward, everything that you see in me has been shaped and molded by God's grace and nothing else. And uh, that's what this kind of uh, testimony that's coming through, and that's the, the title of the sermon today, A Testimony of a Transformed Life, is that because the grace of God has become the full authority and measure of his life, that he's saying that grace has shaped me, that has become my living testimony. I've been transformed by grace. So what's at stake here right now? We have um, a group of people that are following Paul everywhere he goes. So every time he sets up a church and preaches the gospel, right, and people get saved, and inevitably they go, I love this God, I love this, uh, this gospel, and then right where they're at, they go, let's build a church right here, and Paul says amen, and then he moves on to the next place and builds another church. There's a group of people that follow behind him and start preaching another gospel, and that gospel is, uh, is, a, is like a Jesus plus. Uh, you know, Jesus is great, but Jesus plus kosher living is what will save you. And if you were like me, you stood boldly in the face of these people. They're called Judaizers. And you made a huge plate of bacon. And you scooped up that bacon in your hand. And you said, it's Jesus or nothing. And you took a big bite of that bacon. And you said, amen. Because can kosher living save you? No, absolutely not. It's only Jesus. And so what Paul is going to petition us with in here is the only thing that's going to save you is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And your relationship with Jesus Christ is built on grace. And so he's going to say, let's be careful about not following old traditional laws that mean nothing to the relationship. So we're going to continue here uh, in chapter 1 and verse 11. And we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, and then we'll go to our second portion in the part of chapter 2. So we're going to break it in two sections. So here's Paul. He's going to say in verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous in the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later I went to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter's old name, and stayed with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I'm really, what I am writing you is no lie. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us, persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So basically, I just want to so show what we're showing in here is that Paul is setting up a case and he's kind of showing you there is a change that has taken place. What I used to be and what I am now is the person that has been changed by the relationship in Jesus Christ. And what he's also saying is something very unique, something that's unique to us today. Paul is saying, I didn't learn from anybody. Like before he was a Jew and he was uh, studying under other rabbis, he was learning from great rabbis. He, he would position himself to be this great person was learning from the best of the best. I'm only going to the best teachers of the best, you know, uh, Sadducees and Pharisees to learn the law, right? And then that's how I became the best. But he goes, now anything that is good in me is because Jesus gave it to me. Because Jesus gave it to me. Now, because Jesus gave it to me, the only thing I'm holding that is great is what the Lord has given to me out of his goodness, out of his mercy, out of his grace. And so I'm not espousing anything great about me. Everything that is in me, I'm espousing that is great, is in God. In fact, you could see at the very end of the chapter, it says, and they praised Paul because of what he did? Or no, they praised God because of the greatness that happened inside of Paul. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, what, is, what we're dealing with is there has been no change that I have done, that all the full change has been what God has done, which brings us to a three point, and this is our first slide. When we're talking about people who are locked up in the law, and you can look at the Old Testament and the law through this lens. Law was, man was always laboring to make himself acceptable to God. So the Old Testament, man was always trying to follow the laws. As you can see, let me give you the case in point. How many laws did God give man? Ten. How many laws did man make up after that? 613. Just to make sure that they had it covered. But did God ask them to do that? So God gave them ten. And what did man introduce? 600 more problems that they could not even obtain themselves. And so what it was is always being a place of chasing after perfection that you could never achieve. But why? It was for you to impress God. In what way? In a way that you could never do it. And so that's very exhausting, right? And then Christ came along and he said, I came to complete the law. And so this is the good news. This is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament promises that are now revealed in Christ. The good news is that we rest in what Christ has done for us to make us acceptable. When we get to heaven and we stand before the Lord, we're not going to look at show the Ten Commandments and go, I did eight, these six. These six I did really good. Can I come in? No, the only thing that's going to get us into heaven is I knew your son. And he was my Messiah. He called me by name. He cleansed me in his blood. And now that I'm redeemed, I can now come in. Humbly, I don't deserve this, but boldly, I come in by your invitation, Jesus Christ, right? And so that is what Paul is preaching. And so you have to ask yourself, are you operating inside of your faith or in your worldview of Christianity by your righteousness or his? Because our righteousness will never be good enough. In fact, what we're looking up at the screen right now is it's saying our righteousness is what brought Jesus here in the first place because we failed. 
The reason why we needed Jesus Christ is because our righteousness was never good enough. In fact, the Bible says the best that we can offer is dirty rags. Our righteousness is nothing compared to the Lord. And so you have to ask yourself in the middle of this and these Judaizers that are coming into the church, that are infiltrating the church behind Paul, they're saying, well, yes, Jesus Christ is good and we believe he's the son of God, but you also need to be circumcised. Is that true? I'm not going to try to go to TMI, but for the guys in the room, wouldn't you be really shocked if you got to heaven and there was a tent off to the side and they said, gentlemen, can you come over here so we could be sure? <laughs> no. Jesus Christ never taught that once, did he? Ever once did Jesus Christ teach circumcision will be salvation? No. In fact, if you guys can, let's flip over just to see what the, uh, to Gen- or sorry, Galatians chapter 3, just to see how Paul unpacks what Jesus did. Just one page over or two pages over, you should have Galatians chapter 23, 3.23, sorry, 3.23. And this is to show you where Jesus fits in all of this. Galatians 3.23, it says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And who is that faith that would be revealed? Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. So the law was our guardian. So think of it this way. The law was our guardian the way that it's guardrails. Think of like it kind of kept us, you know, from going too far left or right. What was that? That's the Old Testament. That's the law, right? That's the prophet saying, hey, Israel, you're going a little far to the left. You're going a little far to the right. Let's bring you back in the middle. And what did they base that on? The law of the Lord. So that was just our guardian until what? Christ came. That we might be justified by circumcision. What What does the word say? By faith. Faith in who? In the Christ is to come. So Christ came to complete that law so that we could rest in him by faith. So we are not no longer a group of people that are a religion by achieving. We can't achieve anything under God. We can only receive from God. So we are now a faith that receives. And so what the contention that Paul is trying to say here is, is you're following a false teaching if you think circumcision is going to save you because who does that put the power back into? Our hands, which means that we are good enough. But were we ever good enough? No, standing at the foot of the cross, you could say, no, I was never good enough. There was nothing that I can do. Now, I will say this. There is fruit that will come out of you when you become a Christian because we're the roots wrapped around. As a Christian, your roots in your heart should be wrapped around Jesus Christ. And therefore, a change will happen. But it doesn't necessarily, there needs to be a physical outward change. It means there needs to be an internal circumcision of the heart, which is a contention all through the New Testament, which is why in Romans 10, Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, not who circumcised, not who eats kosher, not who follows Old Testament law, but who has faith. And that's what we're saying. So we're no longer a group of people that are trying hard. We're a group of people who are resting well in the Lord. And so you can see that in the case that the Lord's ever say, do you um, need me? Bring all of you that are holy and perfect and super Jewish. Show me that Bible verse. Does he say that anywhere? No. In fact, he says the opposite. Look at this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What are you weary and what are you burdened for? Because the law will always lead to failure. 
That's the whole point of the law as far as its description is it's sent to us. Now, the law has many different reasons why God gave it to Israel. But one of the reasons was that as hard as we would try to obtain the law, the more that we realized that we could not. We're not good enough. There's only one person in history who was ever able, good enough to obtain the law. And who was that? Jesus Christ. And he's the only doorway by which we receive our faith. And so in my experience, I have always found it to be this way. The harder I tried to achieve heaven on my own, the more exhausted that I became. And I believe that the reason that it is, is the more you try to be good, the more you realize how bad you are. Because what are you doing? You're trying. You're trying to do something from a sinful heart. That's the contention of Galatians. You get saved. Remember the book of John that we just studied? We had the case. There is a perfect Messiah who offered himself up on a cross because we were sinners. Okay, now that we're saved, and now we've given our heart to the Lord, what happens when we fail after that? What happens when our fleshly impulses start to kick in after we get saved? The book of Galatians. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. It's the same salvation and grace that you lean on day after day. And that's what he's saying. It's not you trying to achieve because you could look at the Old Testament and you can see how people try to achieve on their own and they couldn't do it without God, could they? All through the Old Testament. Same thing with the New Testament. Let me take you to, let's go into the future. How about Martin Luther? I'm starting to study Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther was a very uh, profound man, right? But he also started off his life doing this. They called it a cell. When he was a monk, he would go back to his bedroom, a little tiny room where these monks stayed, have a bed and a table. And on his table, he had a Bible and a whip. Because every night he would read his Bible and then he would take the whip to try to beat the bad out of him. Was he successful? No. Aren't you glad there's no whips out here at the church? In, in the seat in front of you is your whip. <laughs> No, the only thing that we have is grace. So how about John Wesley? Does anyone know this name? John Wesley, it's really great to, especially if you're a preacher, to compare yourself to John Wesley. John Wesley was the kind of guy that got up super early to pray for hours. And then he would head over to the hospital to pray for dying people before breakfast. And then he would grab as much of his own breakfast to bring to the widows to to take care of them. And then he would go off to the countryside and preach 15 sermons for the rest of the day. And I go, oh my goodness, I hope that's not the standard. I hope not, but the Lord says, no, I called you right where you are, and I loved you right where you are, but I loved you enough to not leave you right where you are. It's not a comparison of performance. It's It's not even a comparison. It's just relationship. And so we move out of a religion of achieving into a religion of believing, and this is why we do this, is because we want to shift the focus off of how bad we are, which we all can acknowledge that's our starting point. We want to shift the focus to how good God is. And that's where we find rest. It's, of course, I'm going to fail. Of course, I'm going to make mistakes. Of course, I'm going to blow it. But my God. But my God chose me. But my God showed up. And this is how uh, you're going to actually see Paul is building this. If you flip over to Matthew, if you could join me in Matthew chapter 22. We'll only be there for a little bit. But if you could join me in Matthew chapter 22, I want you to see this scripture, especially if you can. You might want to highlight this because this is how we become more than just people of grace, that we talk about grace, that we become a living testimony of grace. I want you to hear how the Lord is responding. In, in Matthew chapter uh, 22, verse 36, you can see there's a man who was a, an expert in the law, was testing the Lord, and he asked the Lord in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right? So these are a group of people who identify that they are the light of the world because God gave them the law. 
That's all they're focusing on. God gave us the law. We live the law. We espouse the law. We are great at the law. And so this guy comes up to Jesus and goes, what's the greatest commandment? And look at Jesus' greatest commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not one point in that scripture did you hear him say, here's my checklist. Here's the things you need to be good at. The only thing he said to do was enter into this relationship. Enter into a relationship. Come into this relationship and let love change you. The same love that selected you as a sinner by grace is now pulling you forward in what kind of a relationship? The kind that never gives up on you. It's a covenant relationship. It's a lot like a marriage. Now look at the, how he, he, he puts it to, a, to an end cap. Jesus is so good at this because he knows who he's talking to. He knows who his audience is. He knows there's a, a group full of doers. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. None of it matters unless you have the right motivation in your heart. The rest is just checklist. The rest is just checklist. And I want to let you know what he's actually saying here, Paul and Jesus in this moment. I'm going to give you like a little insight into when I first met Jackie. I was a film student. And this wasn't so you guys, no emails. I didn't do this like last week. Jackie didn't. What I'm about to tell you what Jackie did in my life didn't happen last week. So you don't have to cheer her on. Like, you're doing a great work on Joey. This happened a long time ago. But when I was a film student, um, I really fell in love with movies that could do stuff on a shoestring budget. And then when it was released to theaters, it made a lot of money. Because that's something you want to do. I want to do something really tiny and then have it blow up and make a lot of money. And that's how I'll become famous, right? That's the world. But the biggest movies to do that are horror movies. And so you learn to, like, as a film student, to watch these horror movies. But some people might watch a horror movie, you know, and go, oh, that's so horrible. But I'm looking and I'm seeing where they're holding the lights and where, that, where the director is saying action and where he's saying cut. You know, like, I'm seeing choices. And so I wasn't so invested in horror movies, so you don't have to worry about me. If you watch horror movies, I'm not talking against you. <laughs> but I remember when I fell in love with Jackie, um, there is a lot of differences between me and her. And that is, if you know Jackie, my wife, she is a beautiful young lady that is very sweet and kind, and she does not watch horror movies. A lot of romantic comedies, no horror movies. And so when we first got married, and I was like, you know, we come into our apartment that we're living in, I'm like, so what's the first thing you want to do, babe? It's our place. We can do whatever we want. We're living on our own. She's like, I want to go to your DVD case. And I was like, what? This is not what I want to hear. And I go, what do you want to do? And I'm getting all real nervous walking behind her. And she's like, I want to go through and throw away half of these. And I was like, hold on, hold on. This is, about, this is about compromise. What are you talking about? And she goes, I want to throw away all these horror movies. And I was like, but why? I spent a lot of time going to Best Buy and picking these out, and I invested a lot of money. And she goes, you've now entered into a relationship. You've now, she didn't say these exact words, but really what she's saying is covenant. And this relationship is not going to be built on a celebration of darkness. It's not going to be on a celebration of pain and misery. It's not who we are. And I'm so glad that she spoke into my life that way. But at the time, I was struggling with it. And I, now I'm crying. She's throwing DVDs away. I'm on the floor. And I'm like, God, where are you? She's stripping out all the fun out of our DVD thing. But it didn't really hit me till later. And this is where the broadcast that I want to give to you is, I remember one time we were having, like, when we were just first married, we didn't have a lot of money, so we'd have these Friday night watch whatsoever movies on TV and make fun of it and throw popcorn at the screen. So we'd make big bowls of popcorn and I remember I accidentally hit the remote and it switched over during the commercial to another TV show and it was a horror movie. We thought we were watching the same thing. And in the horror movie, 
the, 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 the whatever bad guy actually grabbed a bunch of kids and hurt them. Now, I want to let you know, this is where it hit me. Um, and if you know my wife, she's now head of the kids' ministry. She's always had a heart for kids. She's always been in kids' ministry, and she could not watch that. And she burst into tears, and she dove her face into my neck. And she said, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. And I turned it off. And then it hit me really hard. I was like, all the good that is in her that I love this is one of the fruits of that same heart that I fell in love with, is that her, she has a heart for people. She has a heart for caring. She has a heart for kindness. And if I love her, then I'll love the things that she loves. And I was changed. Now, this is years later after getting rid of the DVDs, right? And I had to pull her face back and wipe her tears and go, babe, uh, I love you so much. I, I love who you are. And I'm, I'm so sorry I ever even was into horror movies. Can I make a confession? She said, yeah. I said, I hid some of those movies that you were throwing away behind a shelf and I, just in case you were ever not home, I could watch it. I go, let's together go throw them away. And it meant it. And it wasn't because I just didn't want to see her cry. It's because I had been changed by her love. But that didn't come by technicality. That didn't come by strategy. That came by relationship. And sometimes I think that we enter into our relationship with Jesus Christ, and we think that it's kind of like he's a teacher and, and we're just a student, and like, you know, okay, or he's a parent, and we just brush him off the side. He doesn't know, that's you, Lord. I know what you want me to do, but sometimes I need to sneak a little something for me on the side, and we don't realize that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. That the same thing that we're trying to push off the side and justify and make okay, because maybe it's who I am or it's what I'm about, is the same thing that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And I would say that we're a little okay with that because we don't understand, first, who Jesus Christ is, but second, the grace that's been so affectionately afforded to us. We take it for granted because we're not in a place to really understand how deep the wound really is for God. But we could look at the cross and find out. And that's what the Lord is saying. Your motivation shouldn't be just try to placate me or make me just like go away because you don't want to hear me complain. You should love me the way that I love you. Is God all in on you? It's a covenant relationship. He sealed it on the cross. He sealed it in your heart. Can you be all in on him? And that is where we are in Galatians. So if you can continue with me, back in Galatians, Paul's about to do something fantastic. He's kind of set the pace for us, and now he's going to do a little bit of a before and after. He's going to kind of do one of those before and afters. You ever see those things where they do somebody, they give them like a makeover before and after? And you're like, whoa, how did you even live like that? One of, my, um, one of my favorite shows is one of the shows where they ambush people at Home Depot. You ever seen these shows? And uh, like you could tell, like they're like, you know, check, go a little bit slower. My heart's about to explode. They come around the corner, like it's just a guy trying to buy a pipe or a lady trying to buy a hammer, right? And they're like, is your backyard ugly? Can we take care of your backyard? And they come flying around. And even the baby that's in the cart is like, what is going on? Because there's lights and cameras everywhere. And then what do they do? They go to the people's house. And then they show them, like, is your backyard ugly? And they go, yeah, and you're not even prepared for how ugly it is. There's, like, thickets and thorn brushes and a vulture over in the corner and a family of rabbits runs out of a sinkhole. And then the guy's like, oh, okay, we're going to need about three days back here, you know? And they rub their hands and they get a crew. And then piece by piece, you see them. They clear out all the stuff that's bad, right? They level the backyard, and then they bring everything that's good. And by the end, you're like, holy moly. They got a waterfall. They got a fire pit. They have outdoor couches with cushions. This is amazing. I don't have that. I would love that. But it doesn't quite hit you until they do this like kind of reveal, right? This is where we started, and this is where we are now. And when you see the side-by-side, -side, you're like, how did you ever live this way? But by the changing that took place. And what Paul's going to say is, let me justify this story of grace and gospel. Look at verse 13. 
This is the before and after of living in the law and resting in grace. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Basically, to let you know, he's saying, the guy that you know today, the guy that is a missionary of life, when God found me, I was a missionary of death. There's another translations in there. I had no interest in leaving Judaism, no matter how, whatever you presented to me, because I loved being a Jew. In fact, the way that he's talking here is like if we were hanging out baseball cards or rabbi cards, if you had a Paul card, that was worth a lot of money because I was the best of the best. I was good at being a Jew. And he's saying at no point in this particular moment did I earn anything with the Lord. In fact, something else had to take place. If you look at our slide, it says this. God had to make the first step towards Paul. God had to make the first step towards us. There's nothing in your relationship where you went up to heaven and knocked on the door and said, hello, I'm here, you're welcome. God had to show up in your life and knock on the door and let you know how bad you were to give you the good news, give you bad news to give you the good news. And what is the good news? I'm here. By grace, I have come to you. Look at Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a, a great thing to marinate on every morning when you do your devos. The message of grace is it's God-level work. It's not Joey-level work or you-level work. God showed up in your life and made that first step. How big is the step from pure, righteous, holy heaven down to the sinner's? Could you make that step upwards or could only God make that step downwards? Only God could leave heaven and come to you. You can go up to heaven and reach God. And so I understand this, that God has always been working on you. He's never not working on you. So if you could just say for a second, I don't think that I'm a good Christian, you never were. You only had God working in you to prepare you for salvation. And then when you got saved, he's working in you to prepare you for eternity. It's all God doing the work. So rest in him. And he's saying this, furthermore, he hunted me down. Look at verse 15 as we continue. This is that demonstration. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. And so here's the translation in that that's so fantastic. While Paul was being born, God is like, I like this one. And then if we were standing next to God in heaven and he was like looking at the life of Paul, we would get to the part where he was murdering Christians and we would go, oh, no, Lord, let's take this one and throw them in the reject pile. This one's horrible. This is garbage. Who is this person who rejects you so much that attacks your people? And God goes, yeah, but when my grace gets a hold of him, missionary of death is going to be moved to a missionary life, and now he's going to be a preacher of the gospel. In fact, when I look at this one, I see a man who's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament based on grace. See, man cannot do what, man, what only God can do, and sometimes man can't see what only God can see. And that's what the Lord is saying right now. I want you to see is that you are in a place of self-righteousness the moment that you tell God no. You are in a place of no good thing inside of you. Or you're the one that's putting yourself over God. Think about this. Let's put this in perspective. When you say that you have more of a better plan than God, I want you to do this in your head. I want you to think of yourself seated in heavenly places with the Lord. I want you to pick up your throne, and I want you to try and put it over God's. 
and then go, now that I'm in my proper place, Lord, let me dictate down to you what you should do. It doesn't even feel right in your head, doesn't it? Like the moment you say, no, 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 Joey, you can't do that. But how many times do we do that? When the Lord says, do this, and we say no. And the Lord says, throw this out of your heart, and you say no. Or that secret sin that you might be sitting on. It's the only thing I struggle with, Lord, but I gotta have it. But I see it. Let's move your throne up there and you say no. In fact, let me tell you how bad this is. This is what it's called. It's called out of order. That's basically what he's saying. When you're in court and you're out of order because the judge is ruling, you're out of order. I was watching a documentary on these like little nanobots that go inside of the body and repair the body. And what was fascinating that the doctor said is that they're talking about the future where they can have these like little robots go inside and, and fight cancer. As I said, really what's going on inside of the cancer cell um, when these robots come in is that the cell is out of order. And another word they used was there's no more peace in the body, and therefore there's cancer. It's just like, it's a dis-ease. There's no more ease. The body's out of order. The cell is out of order. In fact, what's happening is that it is warring against itself. It is an enemy of the body. The T-cells, everything's trying to come in and needs help. And sometimes we don't realize how much we are out of order when we tell God, my way, not your way my throne over your throne. And yet, has anyone ever been struck down by lightning when we have foolishly said that? Has anyone been thrown up on the cross? No, the wrath of God is sustained only but what? By the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Lord keeps continuing by pressing into us saying, you know what? I have selected you for this moment to no longer be my enemy. I want to transform you into my friend, which brings us to our next slide. God selected us for transformation. If you ever said to the Lord, I am not as good of a Christian as I could be, or I don't listen as well as I should, or there's something wrong with me, you would just be on point. And that's the reason why God selected you. Because if you were perfect and you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need God, would you? And yet the Lord in his infinite wisdom has led and leaned into you by saying, I will hunt you down in your mistakes. I will hunt you down in my failure. And you know what? You were an enemy. You were out of order. But guess what? I want to reconcile you. Look at Romans 5.10. I want to reconcile you through the death of Jesus Christ, his son. How much more have we been reconciled? Will we save through his life? So once you've been receiving the Lord through Jesus Christ's death, right? We, our sin has been nailed to the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed our sin. How much more is God going to recite, you know, reconcile us in his life? Which means this. Is Jesus dead on the cross still? No, he's been resurrected. And then what does he do? He, we just saying, it pours his spirit out on us so that the whole Trinity can come and live in us. Are we perfect to begin with? No, we are enemies of God. What is he converting us into? Children of God. What is he capturing us by? Weapons of mass destruction? Lightning? No, love, grace, mercy. That's how he wins. To put things back where? In proper order. And so you can ask this question, did I ever choose God or did God choose me? I would say no matter what, the God of the Bible, who I've come to know and love, has absolutely chosen me. So between the two Gospels, I'm not going to choose the Gospel of trying hard anymore. I'm going to choose the Gospel of resting and receiving whatever God has for me. Look at verse 17. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which once again, that's Peter's name, and stayed with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. 
And so what he's saying in this particular moment is, I've spent time with Peter, who's kind of like, you know, this is like the George Washington of Christianity. He was there from the beginning. He's kind of one of the ones that wrote the original, uh, you know, the original constitution for Christianity. Here's Peter. There he is. And I spent time with him. And I want to let you know something. I no longer saw something of importance in the flesh. I saw a work of the spirit. In fact, what he's saying is, I had about three years in the desert just like these guys had three years of ministry with Jesus, right? Jesus' ministry lasts about three and a half years. I had about three years in the desert, and I spent time with Jesus. And when we came together, the only thing that was comparable was the works of the Spirit. That's where we were united. In fact, look at this next slide. This is what Paul is saying through transformation. This is why he can say it's no lie. I spent time with Peter, and both of us were moved forward, not in works of the flesh, but works of the Spirit. No longer works of the flesh, not works of the spirit. You know what impresses the Lord? When you just enter into your loving relationship with him and just rest. Let him be God. Just think about this. Was there any works of the flesh that saved Daniel down in the lion's den? Or was it just grace of the Lord? How about Jesus, or sorry, Jesus, Joseph down in Potiphar's house or in the prison? Was there any works of the flesh that benefited him? Or was it just the grace and favor of the Lord? All the way through to second in command of Egypt, Right? But what did he do? They all moved out of a place from relying on the flesh to completely relying on the spirit, which is why it's kind of cool. When we do communion, we always read this verse. And I want you to see the part that's bolded. 1 Corinthians 11 on the screen says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And he talks about how the Lord revealed to him. Just think about this. In this kind of cool conversation, you weren't there for the last supper, right? But Jesus comes and goes, let me describe the last supper to you. And that's how, Peter, how Paul received it, right? And it's kind of a fascinating moment, but what you can see here is, did Paul say, I learned it, or I earned it, or I went to Jerusalem University, and I've captured this in my mind? No, what did he do? He received it. Everything good that he's received is now in communion with the Lord. That's why we do communion. What we could not do in the flesh, Christ does in the spirit. That's why we're in communion. That's why we're in unity, right? And that's the testimony of a transformed life. I'm no longer standing in my strength. What am I upheld by? The power of the Holy Spirit. Look up and down 512. We have a bunch of different churches. Look all across Central Florida, a bunch of different churches. I know, what are we united by? What we can do in our flesh? Are we united by spirit? I went to a church in Mexico, and it blew me away. There was a guy preaching in Spanish, and I had my Spanish translation headphones on. That was awesome. I'm hearing it translated to English, right? And he's preaching a word, and it sounded identical to something I heard Pastor Ryan say. And then they did worship, and they were doing the same songs that we do in English. They did in Spanish. And it was crazy. They stopped at the same places that Rachel stops and just let the music play for a little while and let people worship in the exact same spots. And I got these goosebumps on this mission trip, and I'm like, it's one spirit. It's one Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that unites us, and it's no longer by works in the flesh because it's not the Mexican way. Or if we go on a mission trip to the Ukraine, it's not the Ukrainian way. It's Jesus' way. It's not the American way. It's Jesus' way. It's always been Jesus. We are not standing in flesh. We're communing with the Spirit and moving by the Spirit, which was why he goes on to say this. Verse 21. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. You know what they're really praising? They're praising the heart of the Lord. 
Because look at this. If you could take a murderer, a murderer of God's children, and turn him to one of the greatest mouthpieces for the gospel of the New Testament, look how quick that turnaround is. Now let's do that, man. What was Paul before? That's him in the law. That's you in the law. That's you as self-righteous. Now let's go to the future. Paul, when the, only, the only good thing I have is what Christ has given me. Is he not a different man? Is he not preaching a different gospel? Is he not living in a different way? That is you before and after. Now, let's go to chapter 2. And let's see where he's about to do with this information. Because remember, he's dealing with these Judaizers. So then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went into response to a revelation and a meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Let me give you a little bit before that, before and after. Would Paul the rabbi be hanging out with an uncircumcised Greek? No. Now he's like, this is one of my best students. Let's see what grace has turned him into? All of these people need Jesus. All of these people need the word. The light isn't reserved for Jews. The light is to burst forth and break the darkness everywhere it goes. And so he's preaching this down, and he's also doing something kind of cool here. As you can see, he's coming from a church that's called Antioch. And if you guys know anything about Antioch, Antioch at the time was kind of like New York meets Paris, right? It's like this really great, awesome commerce center, but it's also known as like the fashion capital of the world. So people were really interested in material things. And Paul had planted a church there, right? And Paul planted this church. Imagine planting a church in Paris where all the people who enjoy fashion week give up fashion week and start going to his church. That's how powerful this moment was. And some people said it started in a marketplace and, and it just was a handful of people and then it had moved to 100,000 people attending the church. And now Peter, Paul, and James are going, whoa, how is there 100,000 Gentiles going to church and finding about Jesus? Something must be amazing going on. Paul is capitalizing this and going, look, I need to go back and talk to the originals. You know, the George Washington and the John Adams, the, the Peter, James, and John. The, I need to go talk to them and make sure that these people realize that we should not be talking about circumcision anymore. There should be a unity of a spirit. But he's not just going by himself. He does something great. He brings a Messianic Jew, a Christian Jew with him, Barnabas, and he brings a Greek Gentile Christian named Titus who is uncircumcised to say, the same Holy Spirit that's working in Barnabas is the same Holy Spirit that's working in this Gentile. And the only thing that's good inside of them is God. And so he's going to go with this. Look at this. Verse 4. He's headed for a showdown. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. But I love this verse. Verse 5. It's the best. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That you is the Galatians, and that you is the you in this room right now. Paul is saying, I stuck to the truth. Why? Because Christ himself is my authority, my supreme authority in life. And that's our next slide. Christ himself is our supreme authority. He's like, I am not swayed by people. I am not swayed by emotion. I'm not swayed by culture. I'm not swayed by tradition. You know what I love? I love my God. It is easy for me to fall under the authority of Jesus Christ because how good he is. 
Yes, I had to make changes. Yes, I changed. Yes, I was transformed. But because Christ was so good, guess what? It was easy. And you know what? When somebody else comes in into my church and starts speaking another thing, it's Jesus plus no bacon. Get out of here. Get yourself out of here. I'm not budging for a minute. It's by grace that we live. There is nothing plus Jesus. And so he's only saying, look at Titus, look at me, look at Barnabas. The only thing that has qualified us is Christ's authority in our life. Now look what's happening. Paul goes into this meeting with, with, uh, with the guys, right? He's got his dukes up. He's got his best strategy to present his case. And look what the Holy Spirit does for someone who doesn't budge on the truth. Verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. He's talking about Peter, James, and John. God does not show favoritism. Because who's the authority? Peter, James, and John? Israel? The law? Or Jesus? No, the only thing that mattered Jesus. Look what they did. They added nothing to my message. So I presented the truth, and you know what they said? That's great. We love that this uncircumcised Gentile is a Christian. That's how great this meeting went. He went in all dukes up, all ready to defend his point, going, hey, we, get, we can't be talking about circumcision. And what was he met with? Truth met truth, and we went, amen. Should that not be the case up and down 512 with all these churches? Should that not be the case everywhere the name of Jesus is preached? There should be nothing but the truth and the whole truth. And this is what he's saying right here. Look what he goes on. On the contrary, verse 7, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also in work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, these esteemed pillars, esteemed as pillars, you can see how high he held them up, right? The three apostles, they're so great. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the what? The grace power in the grace, isn't there? The grace that would select you, the grace that would change you, the grace that would shape you, the grace that is given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was what we should do, that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. So much unity in the spirit, so much truth being spoken, no battle, no war, just love God, love each other. And when, he, when Paul came there to meet with Peter and Paul and James, what did he find? The love of God and the love for each other. Because why? Because the grace of God had shaped and molded them. And this is what he's saying. You know what? In a time of self-righteousness, we like to control the narrative really quickly by saying, if I can do this, if I can achieve, then I can tell God that I'm good. I can tell God what my judgment looks like. I can tell God what my punishment looks like because I'm in control of the narrative. But when you look at the cross, are you in control of that narrative? The wrath of God that was meant to, for you was poured out on Christ in your place because you could not achieve. And now that I'm receiving this grace, I live by grace. The same grace that saved me is the same grace that sustains me even through my future failures as a as a Christian. And the more that I find out about this grace coming from the heart of God, the more I fall in love with the heart of God. Which brings us to our last slide. Christ himself becomes the supreme treasure in our life. I want to take you back to that moment when my beautiful wife destroyed my investment into the cinema. And I will tell you to this day, as we watch period pieces and romantic comedies together, and she snuggles up to me on the couch, I do not miss a horror movie for a minute. I don't. 
I don't because I love the life that I live and I love the life we're at and I don't like who I used to be because there was a lot of darkness attached to me when I liked those horror movies. Once again, you don't have to come up to me and tell me all the horror movies you love after the service. I'm not challenging you there. I'm just challenging you on the motivation behind what you select. And what I select also has a lot of meaning of who I love because who I love is part of who I am. And I love Jesus Christ. I want you to see how Paul describes it here in this closing. Philippians 3, 7, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss of surpassing the worth of knowledge, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, even the stuff in the DVD pile, right? I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that has come from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I am now in a religion of receiving and believing. And that's what moves us from followers of man and followers of ourselves to followers of God. That's what moves us from followers of the flesh to now lovers of the spirit. We're going to take a moment and we're going to pray in this moment to receive and I don't know where you might be in your walk, or maybe if you don't know Jesus Christ, today is your day to receive. If you are a person that's living with Jesus Christ and loves Jesus Christ, today is still your day to receive. From the same heart that would save you is the same heart that would cover you with luxurious amounts of grace right now. So if we can, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and let's prepare to receive. Lord, I know that I'm not perfect. I'm not even good. But I know that you selected me before I was even born. Even when you knew I was about to commit sins, you still put your loving hand on me and called me by name. And you pulled me forward to you in grace. You didn't do it with punishment. You didn't do it with violence. It was gentle, loving grace. The voice of a father. And, and when I was living for myself, people knew it. And when I'm living for you, people know that too. But I want to be a heart and a life and a mind that is marked by grace. And so, Lord, I just want to say today, I acknowledge that you're calling me into a holy life. And not anything that I've done has earned this, but it's all by your own purpose, your own grace. And it's also by this, by the grace that you've given us through Christ Jesus. And so today, all I'm going to do is stretch out my hands and stretch out my heart, and I'm just going to receive what I couldn't do, you did. And when I wouldn't pick you, you picked me. And for that, I am eternally and forever grateful I confess my sins, I confess my fear and doubt, and I surrender my life to you wholly. Because I know you're all in on me, I'm going to be all in on you. And that is my testimony to you, Lord. I am a transformed life by love. In Jesus' holy name, amen.